Hello, my name is James Fodor, and you're listening to the Science of Everything podcast, in which I discuss a wide variety of topics in the natural and social sciences in an attempt to better understand the world in which we live. This is episode number nine, and the topic for today is matter and molecules. So in this episode, we're going to look at, well, matter and the properties of matter. We're going to have a bit of a look at the states of matter, physical and chemical change. We'll examine the nature of atoms versus elements versus molecules and how those are all different. And conclude with a look at some uh, more interesting topics of uh, molecules, for example, chemical formula and macromolecules and the different uh, other different types of molecules that exist. Okay, so we'll start off with just looking at matter itself. What is matter? Well, you might know from the famous equation E equals mc squared, uh, where E stands for energy and m stands for matter, that energy and matter are related. So in a sense, matter is a form of congealed energy in that you can convert a lot of energy into a small amount of matter or a small amount of matter into a large amount of energy. That's how nuclear power works, by converting a very small amount of matter from, from uranium into a large amount of energy. So fundamentally, we don't really know what matter is, but one good definition that I came across is that matter is anything that occupies space and has mass. So that obviously includes virtually everything we know of. Trees, houses, planets, stars, dust, people, etc. It doesn't include things like light or uh, fields, and, well, that's about it, really. There aren't too many things that don't have any mass. Photons don't have mass, and there may be some other uh, subatomic particles that don't have any. But so pr- apart from a few things like that, pretty much everything that we know of is matter. And all the matter that we interact with in a daily setting is composed of atoms. Now, there are there is matter that is not composed of atoms, mostly very small subatomic particles like neutrinos that we don't really observe. But for our intents and purposes, all matter that really matters to us is composed of atoms. Sometimes these atoms are found by themselves isolated, but more often they're found bound together in well-defined clusters of atoms that are called molecules. So, molecules are just groups of atoms all bound, bonded together. And how do atoms bond together, you might ask? Well, it works because atoms have electrons which are electrically charged. And so by exchanging electrons between atoms, they can take advantage of this electrical attraction between the nucleus and the electrons, and so they are sort of glued together in that sense. So it's um, electromagnetic attraction that keeps molecules bound together. And we'll do um, a whole episode on that later on, or maybe more than one episode on how uh, atoms and molecules bond together. But for the moment, just remember that it's through electromagnetic interaction, or the same interaction, basically, that keeps your magnets on the fridge. Okay, so the states of matter. As you may have heard, um, matter comes in a few different states. Uh, There are three main ones that we uh, are relevant to us, solids, liquids, and gases. You're probably familiar with those, but what do they actually mean? Well, in solids, the atoms or molecules are packed closely together and do not move relative to each other. So that's not entirely correct, because all atoms are actually in motion, but in solids, the atoms or molecules only... All they do is vibrate a little bit on the spot. They don't really move from one place to another, and they don't really move relative to each other, so they're kind of stuck in place. 
There are two different types of solids. Some of them are crystalline solids and some are amorphous solids. Crystalline solids have a well-ordered repeating crystal structure. Um, and examples include things like salt and, and metals. Uh, whereas amorphous solids, the atoms are stuck in position, but there's no long-range order or pattern uh, to, to those positions. Examples of that include plastic and glass. So you can compare crystalline solids might be like a, um, a group of soldiers all marching in formation, whereas amorphous solids would be just more like a crowd of people. Now liquids um, are very similar to solids in that they're closely packed together, so most liquids are just about as dense as solids. Uh, but unlike solids, the atoms are able to slip and slide past each other. And so they can move around to take the shape of whatever container they're in. Gases um, are completely different from liquids and solids in that the atoms or molecules are separated by wide distances and they're, f and they're completely free to move relative to each other. Um, and in fact, you can compress or expand gases so that you move the molecules or atoms closer together or further apart. Um, you can't do that, or not do it much anyway, with solids or liquids. Now, I just want to take a moment here to talk a bit about glass. I mentioned before that glass is an amorphous solid. Now, you may have heard that glass is actually a liquid that, uh, runs, that runs very, very slowly, and you may have heard a story about uh, panes of glass in old churches that have been there for hundreds of years being slightly thicker at the bottom as the glass has flowed that way over the many centuries of sitting there. That's actually not correct. Glass is, this is a little bit controversial, but usually most would, chemists would describe glass as an amorphous solid. So it is a solid, but there's no regular pattern to it. The atoms are just all sort of higgledy-piggledy here and there, but they are um, stuck in place, so they're not moving. The reason, uh, the explanation behind the panes of glass in the old churches story is that Back in the Middle Ages, people didn't have the ability to make glass perfectly flat and even as we do now. And so it was common that one side of the pane of glass was a bit thicker than the other side. And when they were putting the panes of glass in, you know, common sense would be to put the thicker side down so it was a bit more stable. So that's why you often see that in old churches. However, you can see examples, or at least so I've heard, there are examples of the reverse, where the thicker side of the pane is actually pointing upwards, which is a clear evidence against the uh, glass as a liquid hypothesis. But anyway, if so if you hear that one, you can uh, put people right. Gla uh, glass is actually an amorphous solid. Okay, so moving on, um, I want to have a look at the composition of matter. So we can divide matter into pure substances and mixtures. Pure substances are those that are comprised of only one type of atom or one type of molecule um, and include things like elements and compounds. Okay, so elements are comprised of only one type of atom. And the types of atoms that we talk about uh, usually relate to the number of protons in the nucleus. But we'll talk a bit more about that later. But just remember that elements, there are only in an element there is only one type of atom and the, all the atoms are pretty much the same. Whereas compounds, compounds are comprised of two or more elements bound together in fixed ratios of atoms. So water is an example of a compound. It has two hydrogen atoms uh, to every one oxygen atom. That is a compound. So you've got two elements, two different types of atoms, but bound together in a fixed set ratio. So either elements or compounds are, are both are examples of pure chemical substances. Now mixtures, on the other hand, are not pure chemical substances. 
they are the result of mechanical blending or mixture or mixing of chemical substances but without any chemical bonding so the significance of elements and compounds is that they're all chemically bound together mixtures are not chemically bound together they just sort of mixed together hence the name most things that we see and interact with in ordinary life are actually mixtures some of them are more obvious than others like um drinks are mixtures just like you know you mix a cocktail or whatever that's a mixture but actually even things like animals plants uh, metal alloys computers cars these are all actually mixtures because they're not composed of a single element or single compound they're a mixture of a whole bunch of different things water or at least water with any impurities in it which is you know pretty much any water in the real world and air are all actually mixtures because they don't have uh, definite chemical formulas. Air, by the way, is a mixture of mostly, it's about, I think, 70% nitrogen, most of the rest is oxygen, and then there's a little bit of carbon dioxide and other bits and pieces of everything else. So air is a mixture. Now, atoms, elements, molecules, compounds, all those things have two different types of properties that we can talk about, physical properties and chemical properties. Uh, chemical properties are those that become evident only during a chemical reaction. So that the only way we can you know, work out what a chemical, what the chemical property is, is to change the substance chemical identity. You can't identify a chemical property just by looking at or touching a substance. You actually have to uh, put it into a chemical reaction. So examples of um, chemical properties include flammability, toxicity, reactivity, etc. Whereas physical properties are any measurable property of the of the substance that can be determined simply through observation without having to go through a chemical reaction. Now under the right conditions, say if you vary the temperature, the pressure, or, or lighting, etc., physical properties can actually change without altering the underlying chemical structure of the substance. So, for example, if you shine a red light on something versus a blue light, the color will change. And so one of its physical properties will actually change, but the chemical properties of the substance, of course, won't change at all. Examples of physical properties include size, mass, so how much of the thing you have, albedo, which is how much light it reflects, color, as I said before, electric charge, or an, an, a substance can become electrically charged one way or the other without uh, changing its chemical structure, solubility in water, electrical conductivity, and many other things. Now, uh, just before I mentioned the chemical reactions, you may have been wondering what that is. Well, just as there are two different types of properties that we can identify with of substances, there are also two different ways we can change a substance, or two different types of things we can do to it. Those are physical changes and chemical changes. Now, physical changes are sort of the more superficial changes. They're changes in physical properties, but not changes, uh, but not relating to the chemical properties. So uh, physical changes include such things as changes in shape, changes in its temperature, changes in pressure, also changes in state, so like melting and boiling and so on, breaking it into pieces. All of these things are just changes in, in the physical state. Physical changes don't actually affect the underlying identity or, or chemical structure of the substance, whereas chemical changes do affect the atomic composition or structure of the substance. So examples of chemical changes include rusting and burning and acid-base reactions and other such things like that. So the key thing is that chemical changes always involve the transfer of atoms and or molecules and changes in their bonding relationships. Physical changes do not. Well, you might have atoms moving this way or that way, you know, if you break, it, break a substance up into multiple pieces, but there's no changing in their relationships at a microscopic level or electrons or atoms moving from here to there. 
that's the key difference between a physical change and a chemical change. And finally, one last point before uh, we move on to look at atoms and elements. Uh, and this is the, con the concept of the conservation of matter. In chemical reactions, the amount of matter does not change. It always has to be the same before and after the reaction. Now, as I mentioned before, the formula e equals mc squared tells us that we can convert matter into energy, so that's sort of a violation of the conservation of matter, but that's only relevant to nuclear reactions, uh, which is not something that we're looking at in this podcast. We're just looking at chemical reactions. So in ordinary chemical reactions, which are most of the things that we see every day, nuclear reactions are actually quite rare in you know ordinary life, unless you work in a nuclear power plant or something. In chemical reactions, the number of atoms before and after the reaction must always be exactly the same. Uh, the atoms may change position, they may change in bonding relationships, uh, they may change in phase and state, but they cannot change in the types of atoms that are there. So if you have 10 hydrogen atoms that go into a chemical reaction, 10 hydrogen atoms have to come out, even if they come out bonded to different things or in different states or whatever. So that's the important um, concept of the conservation of matter. That also implies, by the way, the conservation of mass. So uh, whenever you have a chemical reaction, like for example if you burn something, it may seem like some mass has gone away, but actually the mass has just been converted into a different form. So some of the hydrogen in the, within the substance has reacted with oxygen in the air to form carbon dioxide and, uh, and also water vapor, which then have gone up into the atmosphere and are not visible to you, and you can't weigh them, but they're, they're, they still exist. So you cannot eliminate any mass or matter through chemical reactions. All right, so now let's look at uh, move on to the second topic for today and look at atoms, elements, and their differences. Atoms are comprised almost entirely of empty space. A tiny central nucleus containing almost all the mass is surrounded by a sparse cloud of electrons. And this will be familiar from the previous podcast about the history of the atom. Now, you might ask, if atoms are almost completely empty space, why does everything feel so hard? You know, if I hit the table, it, it doesn't sound like it's empty space. Well, the reason for that is because the empty space is on such a small, tiny scale. If you imagine like a jungle gym full of um, metal bars all connected to each other, if you're close up to one of those, it looks fairly sparse, you know, most of it's empty space. But if you were to stand, if it was a massive jungle gym and you were to stand a long way away, it would look pretty solid. And in fact, if you move two of these jungle gyms up next to each other, they'd clank and they wouldn't move together, even though most of them is empty space. So that's an analogy by which you can understand that just because atoms are mostly empty space, it doesn't really matter because the empty space occurs on su at such a small scale that it's not apparent to us as, as macroscopic objects. Now, the atomic nucleus, which is uh, very, very much smaller than the atom itself, is comprised of protons and neutrons, two different subatomic particles. Both protons and neutrons are about the same size, about the same mass, but the proton is positively charged with a charge of plus one, while the neutron is neutral, hence the name. Now, the electrons that orbit around the nucleus are much smaller than the proton. They have only about one two-thousandth of its mass, but they have the same magnitude of charge, except they have a negative charge, so a, negative, a charge of negative one. This, uh, this idea of the electric charge of atoms... The reason that we don't seem to see electric charge in our macroscopic life is because although all atoms are composed of charged particles, most large objects are electrically neutral. The, at the protons and neutrons at a large scale always balance each other out, and so you don't generally see charged objects unless you um, have a look at a Van de Graaff generator or something similar which generates a static charge. Electric charge itself is a fundamental property of 
most subatomic particles. We know that like charges repel, so two positives repel, opposite charges attract. We can use sophisticated equations and various other models to describe this behavior very accurately, but we don't really know at a fundamental level why, why it occurs. It just does. So you, you can keep asking why, but eventually you get to the stage where, well, we don't really know, for example, why protons are positively charged and why protons and electrons attract each other. We just know that they do. And if you start asking why about those sorts of questions, you just end up into either metaphysics or theology, really. Although uh, the string theorists are uh, working on that to try and uh, develop a theory of everything which may perhaps explain why these things uh, work the way they do. But for now, we just have to accept that electric charges exist and they work the way they do. Uh, just another thing I'd like to point out is that this electric charge of electrons is actually what keeps macroscopic objects apart. So, for example, if you touch the table, you know, it feels like you're touching the table or whatever other objects are touching. You can push on it and it, it seems to push back. But actually, none of the atoms, or probably none of the atoms in your hand or the table, are actually touching each other. It's actually the repulsive forces of the electron clouds in your hand and the table which are, which are pushing each other apart. Nothing's actually touching anything else. And that's actually rather an interesting concept. So when you think of objects being on top of each other or touching each other, chances are no atoms are actually in contact. It's just uh, electrost electrostatic forces repelling each other. Anyway, what is an element? A chemical element is a pure substance comprised of one type of atom, as I mentioned before. Now, we distinguish elements by their atomic number, which refers specifically to the number of protons in the nucleus. Common examples of elements include iron, copper, silver, gold, hydrogen, carbon, oxygen, etc. Now, the reason we classify elements by the number of protons rather than the number of neutrons or the number of electrons is because, well, in the case of electrons, electrons can uh, be added and removed from atoms relatively easily. In fact, it happens in most chemical reactions. Um, and you can have a charged atom, which is called an ion. And so it, computers and all other electronic goods uh, work on that property of moving electrons around. So it just wouldn't work so well to um, classify things according to the number of electrons they have. As for neutrons, they are not electrically charged, so they're not so relevant to chemical reactions. So it wouldn't be very useful to classify things according to neutrons. And so that's why we use protons, uh, hence an atomic number, too, to classify the different elements. There are 92 known naturally occurring elements, uh, plus about 20 more that have been artificially created, although most of these artificial ones decay very, very quickly, and so they're not really used for anything. And each element has its own unique atomic number, its own unique name, and chemical symbol. You may have seen these chemical symbols written in uh, chemical equations and so on. Usually the symbols consist of the first one or two letters of, its in of the element's English name, uh, like AL for aluminium, or aluminum for my American listeners. But some older elements have symbols based upon their Greek or Latin names. For example, AU is a symbol for gold, and AG is a symbol for silver, K is a symbol for potassium, and so on. So if you see some funny symbols like that, that's where they come from, old Greek and Latin names. There's a lot of Greek and Latin in science. You know, the planets are all named after um, old Greek and Roman gods. The uh, words used in biology are all based on, and species names and organ names and so on are all based on uh, old Latin words. The symbols used in mathematics are, many of them derive from the Greek alphabet and Latin letters and so on. So it's very interesting to see what influence that has had. Anyway, now I want to talk about the periodic table, or the periodic table of elements. Now this was um, devised by a guy named uh, Mendeleev in the 
uh, late 19th century. And basically, it's just a convenient way to classify and organize all the different elements. I'm sure you've seen periodic tables before. It's just a big uh, table with all the elements on it, listed in order of increasing atomic number. So we start with one hydrogen and end up with, I think, the newest element that's just been discovered is copernicium, or copernicium, I'm not sure how it's pronounced, right at the end, and all the others in between. However, it's not just a, a, a list of elements in atomic number, because you'll, you'll see that the periodic table is arranged into, into columns, and each column is arranged such that if you move down the rows, each row of elements have similar share similar properties. So, for example, the rightmost row of uh, on the periodic table are called the noble gases, and they're all well gases, and they're all inert, so they don't really react with anything very much, and they all have similar properties. So, argon, krypton, xenon, gases like that, helium as well, all share similar properties, and and so on for the for the other columns. So that's why it's called the periodic table, because it's periodic. The properties of elements repeat every so often. And so that's how the table is organized, based on those repeating properties. Now, there are many different you know, subclassifications and particular types of elements uh, on the periodic table, but the, for our purposes, the most important distinction is between metals and non-metals. Most elements are actually metals, and the, these are found to the left-hand side of the periodic table, and the, most of the bottom as well. These are all metals. They tend to be good conductors of electricity and heat. They tend to be malleable and ductile. Malleable means that you can have them into sheets. Ductile means you can draw them into long strings. They also tend to be shiny and silver in color and solid at room temperature. Non-metals are those to the top right-hand corner of the periodic table. There aren't too many of them. They tend to be poor conductors uh, and brittle and generally they're gases at room temperature. Classic examples include oxygen, nitrogen, uh, and things like that. Now, um, that's a bit of a coverage of how we classify elements according to the number of protons. But just to, I just want to have a look quickly at some other ways we can classify elements or, or different types of atoms. So, when an atom gains or loses electrons, as often occurs in chemical reactions, as I mentioned before, it stays the same element because it still has the same number of protons, but it now has a net electrical charge, and so it becomes what's called an ion. It's a charged version of an atom. Negatively charged ions are those that gain electrons, and these are called anions. Positively charged ions have lost electrons, and these are called cations. Now, a little mnemonic device I learned back at school was that cations are pussytive. Pussytive as in, you know, a cat. Kind of lame, but it helps me to remember it. So maybe it'll help you. So that's how we can look at you know different types of atoms with different numbers of electrons. If we look at neutrons, the same element can also have different numbers of neutrons. But once again, if they have the same number of protons, they still have the same ele- they're still the same element, and they still have mostly the same chemical properties. So neutrons don't really change chemical properties. What they do do is make the element heavier or lighter if it has more or less neutrons. These different varieties of the same type of element are called isotopes of that element. You may have heard that word before in reference to things like uranium, isotopes of uranium or something like that, because um, different isotopes are very relevant to things like nuclear energy because some isotopes are more stable than others and hence some are radioactive and others are not. So isotopes have often come up in discussions of radioactivity. The mass number of an atom is the same as the number of protons plus the number of neutrons that it has. And the reason that it's defined like that is because although electrons do contribute mass to the atom, you know, they're so tiny that they're really irrelevant. So the mass of an atom is basically determined by protons and neutrons, and we just kind of ignore the, ne- the electrons and call the sum of the protons and neutrons the mass number of that atom. 
So the key point to remember is that the same element can have different numbers of electrons, in which case it becomes an ion, or different numbers of neutrons, in which case it becomes an isotope. Now, just to confuse you even more, there's also a third type of variability. So even when molecules have exactly the same elements of exactly the same isotope and exactly the same number of electrons, they're bonded together in the same amount, so we've got the same molecules here, but sometimes the atoms can be just in slightly different position. You can think of a, a long chain molecule of carbons or something where you have an oxygen on the second carbon atom compared to the fifth carbon atom or something like that. So it's exactly the same types and numbers of atoms and same isotopes, but just in a slightly different arrangement. That's called a structural isomer. And even more subtle is where we can have exactly the same structural isomer, same isotope and everything, but just oriented a bit differently or bent in a slightly different way, and that's called a spatial isomer. So uh, structural isomers, spatial isomers, they both refer to different arrangements of the same molecule, just, you know, moved around a bit. So yes, we can have ions, isotopes, and isomers all of the same element or same compound in the case of isomers. So just keep in mind all the different ways that atoms and, and molecules can vary. Finally, I just want to conclude by having a bit of a look at molecules and compounds in a bit more detail. Now, there's one thing that's really cool about compounds, and is that they can have completely different properties to the atoms of which they are comprised. So, for example, sodium is a, sh is a soft, shiny metal that's highly reactive and very poisonous. You don't want to go consuming too much sodium, sodium metal anyway. Chlorine, similarly, is a pale yellow gas that's also highly toxic. So you've got sodium and chlorine in their elemental form, Highly toxic, not very nice. Put them together, they form a compound called sodium chloride, which is ordinary table salt. This is the classic example you see it in all the textbooks, but you know there are heaps of examples of this where compounds can have completely different properties to the elements that make them up, or the atoms that make them up. Another example is water. Water, as you should know, is comprised of two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen atom. Now, hydrogen is a very light, flammable, and transparent gas. Oxygen is also a gas, um, it's transparent, and you can't really taste it or see it in any way, and it's, well, it's required for anything else to, to burn. I don't know if you call that flammable or not. But anyway, they're both gases, you put them both together, and they form water, which is a liquid or, or sometimes a solid at uh, common temperatures, and obviously very, very different to either hydrogen or oxygen. Instead, uh, if you take one of those oxygen, two of those oxygens, and combine them with a carbon atom, you form carbon dioxide, which is toxic to humans if, if it's in too large um, a concentration. So, the, the key point to this is that the properties, the chemical and physical properties of compounds are determined exclusively, really, by the structure and arrangement of the atoms of which they are made up, and not really what those atoms are. So although we get all sort of focused on, you know, the periodic table of elements and looking at all the different elements and how they all do different things, the elements themselves aren't really that important. Well, they sort of are because they form the molecules, but you can have molecules uh, that, do, uh, that are quite similar to each other made of completely different atoms and vice versa. You can have very, very similar molecules with completely different properties. Compare, for example, carbon monoxide to carbon dioxide. The, the difference is only one oxygen atom, but one of them is extraordinarily toxic, which is carbon monoxide. Even a little bit of it will kill you. Whereas carbon dioxide, well, we breathe it out all the time, and it's too much of us warming up our planet. So, as Carl Sagan said, the beauty of a living thing is not the atoms that go into it, but the way those atoms are put together. And that applies to anything, not just living things. It's the way the atoms are put together 
that, that is, that's really important. And that leads us into the concept of chemical formulas. Chemical formulas basically tell us the way atoms are put together, the specific ratios and numbers of atoms. These are generally represented as the chemical symbols for elements, with little subscripts representing the numbers of those atoms in the compound or the, the chemical substance. And so, for example, we have H2O, which means two hydrogen atoms bonded to one oxygen atom. And that's just a very simple chemical formula if you get into organic chemistry and uh, or look up chemicals, perhaps on your um, bathroom uh, products, look the names up on Wikipedia or something, you'll be able to see the chemical formulas of some of these things are ridiculously long and complicated. So H2O and CO2 are just some very simple examples of that. But the key thing to realize is that compounds or molecules are always comprised of whole number ratios of atoms and that those ratios are always fixed. They have to be exactly the same. If you change even one of those atoms, so put in an extra hydrogen or an extra oxygen or whatever, that changes the compound. It's now something different and it may have completely different properties. So that's why chemical formulas are very important. We need to make sure we're getting it right. Now, a note on the different types of molecules that exist. There are quite a number of different types of molecules. I just want to focus on a few here, uh, some of the most basic ones. Atomic elements exist freely in nature as single atoms. So most metals fit into this category. You know, you can find one atom of gold just sitting around in nature. Of course, you wouldn't be able to see it, but you, know, you theoretically could. Molecular elements, on the other hand, do not exist as single atoms, but are found as small molecules, generally two or sometimes three atoms bonded together. So hydrogen and oxygen and, and nitrogen are classical examples of that. The oxygen and nitrogen in the air are not they're pure elemental substances, but they're not just one oxygen or one nitrogen atom just floating around. It's actually two oxygens and two nitrogens bonded together. The reason they do that is is to do with the orbital shells of the electrons and filling those up and so on, and we'll look at that in later episodes. But the point is you can have pure elements, but they don't have to be just one atom. I mean, they can actually be bonded into into molecules, so those are molecular elements. There are also molecular compounds, and those are formed between two or more non-metals, and they form single isolated molecules. Now, molecular compounds are, distinct, are distinguished from ionic compounds, which form between one or more metals and one or more non-metals, and they tend to form large repeating lattices rather than individual molecules. Okay, so uh, let's go over that, uh, that again, because that's a little bit confusing. Molecular compounds you have uh, form between non-metals, which are the ones to the right, top right of the periodic table. Ionic compounds form between metals and non-metals. And ionic compounds tend to form big lattices or big structures of, of repeating um, units. So maybe, for example, in the case of sodium chloride, you might have a sodium atom and then a chlorine and then a sodium and then a chlorine and sodium chlorine, etc. And kind of a big three-dimensional lattice. Whereas molecular compounds formed between the non-metals just form one molecule or, or separate distinct molecules, like one water molecule and then another water molecule. They're not big, long lattices or, or chains or big structures like the ionic compounds are. So that's why ionic compounds, uh, which are things like you know metals and rocks and uh, minerals and things like that, they're often brittle, so you can crack them and they, and they tend to shatter. And that's because you've, you've essentially hit a soft point in the lattice, which then, then sort of shatters, kind of like you shatter a diamond. That's another example of a big compound, a uh, lattice compound. Probably the most interesting type of molecules, though, are macromolecules, which, as the name implies, are very, very big molecules. Now, most molecules that you talk about might be a few atoms or a few dozen atoms or even a few hundred atoms um, long, but macromolecules can 
become ridiculously huge. DNA is an example of a macromolecule, and these can be hundreds of millions of atoms in size. This is a single molecule. These are all bound together in one molecule. That's quite impressive. Some other things that are um, macromolecules, there, there are some inorganic examples as well, including diamond and graphite, which are essentially just one big molecule of carbon atoms all packed together in a certain way. By far the most important and interesting examples of macromolecules are the so-called biopolymers, the molecules that make up cells. And these are, as you may have heard, carbohydrates, proteins, lipids, and um, nucleic acids. And these can just form enormous structures, particularly proteins and nucleic acids. They can be millions of atoms in size. And the behavior and properties of macromolecules are... (laughs) as a result, extremely complicated, and so we need to use some very advanced chemical techniques to try and understand these things. But I think it's very interesting that you can just go from very basic chemical properties of chemistry and extrapolate it up through macromolecules, and then once you get to macromolecules, you start looking at cells, and from cells you look at life forms, and before we know it, we're looking at human beings themselves, all from just starting at a base of simple atoms and molecules all interacting with each other. So you are made of macromolecules. It's quite interesting. Anyway, that's uh, that's all I have for this podcast. Hopefully uh, you learned something. And if you enjoyed the show, please uh, spread the word by posting a review on iTunes or putting a link to my website, which is scienceofeverything.webs.com. I don't think anyone has visited my website yet, so you could be the first. I have very detailed show notes on there of everything I talk about, and uh, some of the podcasts have, have links to uh, resources as well. And if you have any comments or suggestions or anything else you want to say, feel free to contact me. My email address is fods12, F-O-D-S-1-2, at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll speak to you next time. Mm